huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, hello, hello. Sorry, my phone just wouldn't get unmuted there for a second. All good, all good. Um, all right, so, Dan, obviously it's been another busy week of Syracuse sports, but I wouldn't say there's really anything huge going on. Um, but why don't we start up with um, kind of a surprising decommit uh, this evening and for folks tuning in yesterday night. Uh, Kirsten Johnson is already uh, looking elsewhere after just a... Uh, pretty much a few weeks uh, as a Syracuse commit. Yeah, I'm looking. He committed back on July 2nd, so a little over a month, and uh, I enjoyed Stephen Bailey uh, on Twitter, and this was literally just happened like moments before we got on here, so this is very breaking slash, you know, for you guys, it's like 12 hours old. Um, but Stephen Bailey said, yeah, two weeks ago when he came for his visit, he's like, yeah, that pretty much, uh, I can find the actual quote, but essentially said that's pretty much secure that this is where I want to be and, you know, all the other fun stuff we always hear. Uh, so apparently not. So uh, I'm interested to see what, what uh, offer he got that is probably the impetus for this. Um, and good luck to him. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it could be an inbound offer or two. It could be just some shifting um, priorities within the program. I mean... Obviously, he had a committable offer. The staff was doing its usual, you know, celebrating on Twitter and such. So it's it's obvious they wanted him when he committed. But yeah, I, I am very curious to see uh, see what happens next. I know even I believe his mom like favorited a tweet about it um, and has retweeted a story of mine about it. And so it's definitely, I mean, obviously these things aren't done until signing day. But interesting to see such a quick heel turn. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just kind of reading the tea leaves, he's a Jacksonville kid, so maybe UF is sniffing around. Uh, I know Florida State just had a linebacker decommit, uh, so maybe they're interested. So there's, you know, a lot that can happen, and we're obviously very early on here. Um, but Syracuse, I mean, we're in pretty good sp- uh, shape. 16, I mean, after his decommitment, 16 uh, guys in the fold, so the, the class is pretty far along. And, and uh, a number of linebackers, uh as well, Nadarius Sagan, who we talked about last week, who has a ton of offers, um, Tyrell Richards, we have uh, a couple other safeties and, and defensive ends, so we're in, uh, we're in decent shape, I think, overall, and, and, you know, he was a good player, but you can't get too worked up over uh, every recruit that commits and decommits, because it happens so very often, as anyone who followed this for a couple of years now knows. Oh, completely agree, and I think, again, you know what, like, Johnson's a good player, he's obviously going to have, you know, other quality uh, pursuers, I think it's just, again, interesting to see it flip so fast, but you know what, at the end of the day, these things happen, we got plenty of time, and I was just saying in that article that was up on Tuesday, um, 
the class does have a lot of momentum, but you know these things don't last forever. It's just good to have um, you know three quarters of a class in the door before your season because then you're stop then you stop selling them on what this team can be and, and the potential of what it can be, and then you're actually selling them on the, the outcome. Which for Syracuse, I mean, who really knows this year? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a big wild card. And uh, I know as fans, we have our uh, expectations. And I think we're all, I mean, I've been pretty impressed with kind of the general thoughts of what Derek will be. And, you know, it seems like most people are, are taking a step back and understanding that it's going to be a multi-year process. Uh, for recruits, it's not always as easy to figure out because, um, you know, some might understand the context of uh, what, you know, switching over to the Babers regime here means and some you know it, it'll be harder to impress you if they win four or five games in year one rather than six or seven so uh we'll, we'll see what happens here I, I have been pretty happy with how things have gone with this coaching staff so far the recruiting class um for sure i think it's been a positive uh i know there have been a lot of nice articles written about it um obviously having tommy devito as we talk about every week in the fold is a huge plus so we'll see where we go from here there's plenty of time before signing day Indeed. Speaking of plenty of time, um, one guy who we thought was kind of going to get to Syracuse eventually for a visit, and it ends up that he will be there next week, um, was announced tonight. Uh, Charles Reeves, the uh, four-star tight end. He's a probably top 300 guy by most services. Um, and he's pretty tight with Tommy DeVito. Um, he announced that he'll be at Syracuse next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday. Um, obviously, you can't read too much into that, but some of his tweets have definitely indicated that he uh, he likes the selling point of of a Devito as, as as the quarterback for Syracuse, Dan. Yeah, and it, and it seems like he's uh, legitimately high on the program, which is nice. Uh, and this is you know the benefit of having an elite eleven quarterback. Um, he's from Steubenville, Ohio, which uh, has has been the subject of some very unfortunate stories, but also has a very strong football tradition. Um, not Obviously, we don't think he has anything to do with those. Those were years ago. Uh, but he's one of the top 15 Titans in the class for 24-7. He's like a borderline three, four-star kid. Um, I, it looks like he'd be a great pickup. I mean, he's hit five, 230. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where Babers looks uh, like what he does with the tight end, because I know at, uh, at Bowling Green, um, it didn't quite, like, it wasn't a huge part of the offense, but that can change. I mean, now that he has access to uh, higher-level talent and uh, potentially, you know, higher-level tight ends, and, and Reeves looks like he might fit that mold of, like, a, a big receiver uh, type who can, you know, get out and block on the perimeter and also be a big target, you know, maybe that becomes more of a focus for the offense. Yeah, and, I mean, I think this is going to be a big... I don't think it's a major part of the offense, but I do think it's going to be a big question for folks. I think people are wondering, um, you know, what the tight end position is going to be able to do this year uh, versus what it did in previous Babers offenses and what the tight ends have, have done, I'd say, over the last three or four years where they've been, you know, very underutilized for Syracuse. Um, do you think that Reeves coming in could have any potential impact on Aaron Hackett, who also committed in the last week? I, I think that he... Uh, he obviously cited, you know, early playing time as a big draw for Syracuse. So would that would that change things, or do you think that, that this team could potentially um, bring in two tight ends um, in this cycle, both of whom are a little more pass-catching focused? 
Um, apparently, we're only recruiting uh, pass catchers, so maybe. <laughs> I mean, we already have, what, five receivers in the fold, and plus Hackett, who, you know, 6'3", 225, so he's more of a receiver, um, which just it, it seems to be the mold that we're recruiting tight ends in. Um, I mean, it's very clear that Babers wants to totally uh, re-sculpt this offense in his image, which uh, makes sense because, you know, aside from having a nice guy like Steve Ishmael and, you know, some other youthful players uh, on the perimeter, it's, it's an offense that was built um, in, like, the uh, with the ideals of, like, two or three different offenses when those guys are being recruited. So uh, I totally get Babers wanting to really, like, hammer down at the types of skill position players he wants uh, in order to start building what, you know, he runs with his program versus what George McDonald uh, and everyone else that we've been, you know, that previously had been recruiting for their, uh, I hesitate to call them systems, but like <laughs> whatever whatever you would call George McDonald's ideas. offense or Tim Lester's offense. Um, Loose yeah, ideas put onto paper. <laughs> they're like, it's like when like a poet dies and they find like their manuscripts and they don't make a lot of sense, but like it just you know there are ideas here. There are things on these page pages. We don't know quite what they were intended to be uh, in their final uh, forms, but this is what we have now. So we're going to release these into the wild. Um, yeah. So uh, uh, it does seem like a strange amount of this recruiting class is being dedicated towards receivers, and then you throw in you know a tight end or two, and and you know it's what like potentially more than a quarter of the entire group. But um, obviously there's always, uh, especially after the first year with a new coach, like there's always turnover. And um, like I said, it's a, it's a really, really different system. So I get why Babers wants to kind of flush out uh, the pieces that don't make any sense and then bring in the ones that do for what he runs. Yeah, I, I'd have to agree. I mean, as much as, you know, a, a very, very heavy emphasis on pass catchers, can be a little worrisome right now. I think where uh, where we end up, you know, doing well is that it does. I think lessen the ramp up time to uh, to change the system and change the culture, um, and you know the, these failed offenses and things like that. Um, versus, you know, Babers and obviously like he needs speed. He needs these guys. I think he has a lot of faith in Ishmael. I think he has faith in Phillips and, and, and Esteem to a point. But obviously those guys aren't going to be around forever. Um, and I think you know he understands, and we talked about this weeks ago, that while receivers have a lot of depth, there's not much, um, there's just not much there um, you know, beyond those top three is really guys that we know we can rely upon um, at the FBS level and at the Power 5 level. Which is troubling. I think the one place I would like to see a little bit more action. Um, I feel like the last couple of classes we've uh, we, we've built some depth um, in terms of the secondary, but I think that the defensive line is a place that really needs to to be addressed full force um, with with a bunch of the rest of these slots. Um, especially, I mean, yes, we have guys coming in, but you know, you can never have you know too many guys who can play to the Tampa two. Um, on the line, especially when we have guys who are going to be kind of, you know, square pegs into round holes. We assume that they'll be able to adjust, but if they can't, uh, you know, the depth issue could come right back and bite us in the next year or two. Right, and that that's going to be, you know, part of the, the growth process here with Babers. Um, obviously, you know, Marone had the one down year and they made a bowl in year two. 
and Schaefer kind of, uh, you know, his first year was his best. Um, so it, I think adjustment periods aren't exactly, like, we haven't actually had, a, like, a super long one, aside from, you know, G-Rob wasn't really an adjustment period. It was a total bottoming out. Um, so it'll be interesting because I think this is definitely the most uh, rapid and wild uh, reformation of what the players on the team are used to. Um, so it's going to be a pretty uh, pretty big one. Um, but also at the same time, I mean, Babers has had a lot of success his first years uh, at his previous two stops. So, um, And we've seen uh, a couple different um, various websites and publications who are kind of bullish on Syracuse in year one, even if it doesn't mean they're going to a bowl or whatever um, right away, which is okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard to really tell until we see it. So I'm, I'm very excited. Um, it does almost feel like that year one of Marone where, uh, A, we didn't have G-Rob anymore. Not, not, to, not to compare Scott Schaefer to G-Rob, that's even unfair for Schaefer. Uh, very unfair for Schaefer, honestly. Um, but also that, like, it's not going to get worse, and I expect some really tangible improvement, even if that doesn't come in the win column right away. Completely agree, especially given the, the level of difficulty in this schedule. Uh, certainly not going to be easy to, to quickly kind of amass those wins. But I, I think a lot of Syracuse fans are very realistic. Uh, most I've seen on every corner of the Internet um, have been very realistic about this season. I think that that's the one thing that um, you can say about us as fans, that we, we are fairly realistic about this program when, when we're in rebuild mode. I think when realism gets thrown out the window is the second that we have any sort of momentum. Uh, and I think I'm guilty of it, uh, just like many others. Uh, you know, the second we win a couple games in a row, you start deluding yourself into into what could be. Or, I mean, I think most of us were in the SU's going to the Orange Bowl train back in 2011 after the West Virginia win, and obviously we know how that turned out. Yeah, I'm going to say we're probably at no point going to uh, think we're going to the Orange Bowl this year, but I could be wrong. I would have to agree with the, the first sentiment. Um, I, I mean, I hope you're wrong, uh, but I, I don't think you're going to be, which is fine. Again, we're, 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 we're very disloyal on this podcast. <laughs> uh, a podcast hosted by me would be, uh, would be the top candidate for most disloyal Syracuse podcast, if I had to guess. For shame. And, yeah, for shame. Um, Talking about coaches, though, uh, I know the other day um, Athlon published a quick thing about uh, chatting with some anonymous ACC coaches about Syracuse, and it seemed like we had uh, you know, a smattering of different opinions. Most of them were about Scott Schaefer, despite the fact that they were asked about Syracuse and its current coaching staff. Um, my favorite one, obviously, was the one that was definitely Pat Narduzzi, um, where he pretty much praised Schaefer. Um, and then made up a bunch of excuses for why he shouldn't have been fired. Uh, Dan, did you have any other favorite quotes besides that one in particular? Um, I don't have it open in front of me, but uh, yeah, I, I would. I get why. I know that Narduzzi has a bad, uh, you know relationship with Schaefer, but beyond that, I, I don't think any of the ACC coaches probably wanted to see uh, Schaefer get fired, except for maybe Dave Clawson. Yeah, I, I would have to agree there. I'd say Clawson, maybe Adazio, but even then. Um, I, I think Adazio gets a bit of a he gets a little bit of a pass for last year and then if he bottoms out this year I think he's done um, but yeah I, I think Clawson you're right is probably the only coach looking to see him 
uh, Don. I think it's it was definitely funny to see things like that. Of no one thought Scott Schaefer should have been. Well, of course you didn't. Like you kept beating him. Like like nobody at the end of the day is is rooting for their conference to just continually get better around them because it makes their job harder. Yeah, it just. I I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it's just like. Yeah, no, we, we we want you to bring in better coaches because we really want to challenge ourselves when there are millions of dollars on the, on the line um, as a coach of a middling ACC program that plays this other school every year. Definitely really want what's best for Syracuse, and that is Scott Schaefer continuing on. <laughs> I think he's jumping back over to recruiting a little bit. Um, two other pieces of news, and again, for, for those that weren't paying attention at the beginning. This is going to be more of a grab bag episode, just kind of bouncing around different Syracuse topics, college football topics. Inevitably, we're going to get off Syracuse topics because that's usually what happens here. Uh, so I wanted to fit in as many as possible in the first half of the podcast for when you all tune out in the second half, probably. Um, so some interesting things over the weekend. Um, you had Curtis Harper commit, defensive tackle. He committed on Friday. It was announced on Monday. Um, and then you also had the, the very interesting, and not very interesting, but I guess something that we should probably get used to hearing about a little bit more, where uh, three-star running back uh, Damon Drew uh, committed on Sunday night to an uncommittable offer, um, and Syracuse regretfully had to inform him that they would not be able to take him on at this time. Um, SU obviously has one running back in the fold. It seemed like they were going to recruit at least one more. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that, that Drew just didn't fit that uh, that bill when they might have some other bigger names. Um I know, what's his name? Isaiah Miller, the Oregon State recruit, um, seems to have kind of moved to the top of the list um, with some other guys off the board. Yeah, and, you know, it stinks for him, but I much prefer that to, you know, a week before signing day and the coaches ghosting on a kid and then uh, all of a sudden not having a spot for him. So, you know, it stinks now, but I think uh, that's probably the, the better approach overall. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the reality of recruiting. This is the reality, and I said this um, on, on the site, this is the reality of a 24-7, 365 recruiting cycle where, you know, offers aren't sent out as these things that are, you know, standing and, and, and you can rely on them to be there, just like you can't rely on commitments to be there the whole time without keeping up that relationship. Um, you know, these offers are being put out for, for needs of the moment, and the second that need is no longer... Um, there, uh, whether it's a comparable player committed or a, uh, or a better player committed, you know, you, you as a program you can't sit and wait. And, and the same could be said for the kids. You know, as a as, as a recruit, you can't sit and wait if you if you hear from Alabama or, or you even hear from you know whether it's Florida State or Ole Miss or, or Arkansas even, and you you hold an offer from a Syracuse or an NC State or Boston College. You know, you have a very short amount of time to, to jump on that offer, typically. Um, so, yeah, I, I think fans didn't seem too surprised, and I think they will be surprised if this happens more often. As Syracuse it seems to be putting out a pretty wide net. Um, I know Babers offered, like, upwards of 120 kids uh, within a couple months of him getting there from, like, a three- to four-year stretch of classes. Yeah, he's definitely going very wide, and I think that's just kind of a trend in all of football recruiting. But, like, today, 24-7 dropped their 2019, like, top 100 kids, and, like, 11 are already committed. Those are kids that are going to be sophomores in high school this year. So 
I think overall, and, and I don't know if things necessarily for the better, but it's just kind of the reality, um, recruiting is getting pushed, like, really pushing the limits of, like, what seems okay. Um, but at the same time, I, I hesitate to blame, uh, like, Babers, because, if you know, it might seem weird or kind of gross in some ways, but at the same time, like, he has a program that needs to compete with the other programs, and if, uh, you know, Pitt and Temple and Rutgers are going to start offering high school sophomores, I mean, and that's going to make a tangible impact, which it, you know, may or may not, but it's yet to be seen, then, you know, he has to kind of be out there doing the same thing. Um, so, uh, I, you know, I do applaud them for at least being up front with the, uh, the running back who tried to commit because, again, better now than in February, for sure. Too, too true. Um, it's a little bit before halftime. We'll start kind of mingling into some other uh, topics. Um, as of August 1st, uh, coaches can now retweet um, things that recruits put out. Uh, they can't, you know, interact directly. Um, but, Dan, how have you felt about it so far since you might follow a few more coaches than I do? Um, how do you feel about the potential for this? Do you feel like it's, it's definitely going to be bad? Do you feel like there's some positives here? Uh, what's, what's your kind of big takeaway from, you know, the, the NCAA's uh, rule shift? Um, I have a couple of different like, views on this. A, and just in terms of how it's worked out the first couple of days. Um, it's super annoying when the coaches decide to start retweeting stuff from like 300 days ago all the time. Um, and that's just kind of a personal thing. Uh, just seems unnecessary. Um, I appreciate the NCAA trying to streamline its rules so that they make uh, a little more sense and are, like, less um, restrictive over just dumb stuff. Like, who cares if a coach uh, retweets a recruit? Like, who's... I I get that, you know, it's probably better that that is no longer a penalty because it's not really negatively impacting anyone. Um, At the same time, I, I don't really know why coaches need to do it because I, like, I get having conversations in DM or via text or everything else, I don't see why, you know, or a crew getting favorited a million times in a row by Lane Kiffin is going to make him want to go to Alabama more, but I'm also 25, which means I'm an old person now compared to uh, recruits, so maybe it does have a tangible impact. Um, but overall, I mean, I guess it will change, and I, I, like I said, I generally support things that take the NCAA's hands out of stuff that don't need to be in. Uh, so they can focus on more important things like not uh, coming down on USC hard when that time comes. Which is definitely going to happen. We're celebrating oh, 100%. I have no doubt. Of the AP poll going... Sorry about that. I have an AP poll article up and it decides no matter how many times I hit pause that it's going to auto-launch a video anyway. This is how you get free content, folks, is that you then get bludgeoned over the head on our site included with auto-launch videos. I wish they would go away. I'm sure there's a better way. If somebody in mobile advertising or digital advertising has an idea, please call me or anyone else that writes on the internet. I'd love to hear it. But that monetization is so tasty. It's, I mean, that that hot, hot (laughs) monetization. Uh, So I guess that's a good segue into what I was going to talk about next. Um, AP released its top 100 programs ever using what some people call a very lazy formula. Um, I know SB Nation kind of uh, looked at a better way to do it, um, and that's all well and good, and I, I, I much rather embrace a smarter way of doing things. But if we're going to look at the, the larger picture that we have here on AP, uh, their top 100 programs include Syracuse, but they are all the way down at 41. That's not necessarily surprising, but what is disconcerting and, and 
at least upsetting to me, is how close we are to the, the four or five programs in front of us and knowing that all it really took for us to drop to where we are is, is you know, a, uh, a very unfortunately timed 15-year run, Dan. Yeah, uh, that's what happens when you hire G-Rob. You are now no longer a top 40 program, but you were just below. Um, but yeah, overall, uh, yeah, this was not, the process they went through really wasn't great. Um, it just seems like they could have uh, kind of smoothed the weight of different things a little better than they did, and instead it was like, did you win the national championship? Did you finish number one? Did you finish? anywhere else and I think most of us would agree that you know finishing second or third is better than finishing 25th and should be treated differently um, but clearly they wanted to just kind of do something very simple um, so and and I think having uh, a team not named Alabama at number one probably helps them in terms of traffic so yeah that, that's what happened here yeah and you know what I think I mean a I'm glad not to see Oregon on the top 25 um, along with a couple other teams but you know, I, I do think the weighted list, I know I saw part of the weighted list article that Jason Kirk put together. Uh, it only had the top 25, though. I would like to see the whole thing down the line. Um, because, yeah, like you said, there, there's a huge difference between finishing second in the polls and finishing 24th or 25th in the polls. Um, and I think that that should be uh, accounted for accordingly. Because if you use the weighted list, it seems that Oklahoma does uh, much, much better. Um, the interesting data I saw, at least on the AP uh, post, was, you know, they're accounting for best full decade, how many weeks they had number one ranking. The worst full decade um, was also interesting because you get to kind of counter, you know, this is why this team is in this poll and this is why it could have been even higher. Um, so Ohio State in particular, um, looking at only 55.68% of polls um, in the 1940s. So Oklahoma was in, you know, over 94% of polls in the 50s. So one team, I think it was Florida State, was in 100% of polls in the 90s, and that doesn't surprise me. Same with Nebraska, same with Michigan um, in the 70s. So, yeah, it, it was just it was interesting to see that data, but, again, there's there's got to be more substance to the point system than just did you appear. Yeah, I would like to shout out the uh, wonderful programs, uh, Penn, uh, Rice, Wyoming, um, Cornell, Santa Clara, which no longer exists, uh, Fordham, Holy Cross, all of which finished uh, above Rutgers. <laughs> oh, and Tulane. Tulane at 70. Yeah, roll wave. Tulane, one-time SEC program, Tulane, finishes above uh, current Big Ten program Rutgers. Yeah, Rutgers had 38 weeks on here. and They had shot Dartmouth, so that's nice. Yeah, they, they beat Dartmouth by one, East Carolina by one. They uh, Most of those were in the last 10 years. I would think. Or at Probably least like, like uh, those two seasons that they, you know, the best seasons in Rutgers history that ended in a Texas Bowl. Yeah, that uh, that happened. We're, we're really just playing the hits on Rutgers fun right now. <laughs> Miami, Ohio is above, and Holy Cross are above Rutgers. Yeah, Oak Grove. Do they even still... They play football still? I mean, I know they're, they're FBS. Yeah, they're FBS, we actually... But... Yeah, we faced them in 2019? Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, the cross the cross just started like taking all these body bag games so they can keep the program afloat. 
So they're facing us, they're facing BC, Yukon, I think Maryland. They're like really bridging the, uh, the northeastern portion of the FBF. Good for them. Yeah, way to go, guys. Um, I think, what's the, uh, is Cornell the, the highest ranked non-FBS program? Nope, Penn. You get Penn in Penn. nine weeks. I'm assuming, uh, no, yeah, I think it's probably Penn strolling up here. Nice job, Penn. Yeah, so that's that. And I think we can put an end to the first half of this podcast and then go on a little halftime. Good time. Yeah. Dan, what have you been drinking for the last six days? Uh, nothing all that exciting, honestly. I was up in Cape Cod um, for the weekend, but it was a lot of, like, macro stuff and a lot of, like, you know, Yingling and Sam Adams and some, you know, juice. I always have my way to juice, but that's also everywhere. So nothing, nothing too, uh, too overly exciting this week. Hopefully, I will do better for everyone next week. All good. Um, for me, I had a bunch of different stuff. Um, went to, uh, well, I'll get to that. Had a soul footer with uh, boysenberries from Monkish. I had the cherry version about a month back. Uh, still drinking really well. Had a bottle of this year's Tart of Darkness from the brewery. I really enjoyed. Uh, Ballast Point opened up their new tasting room down in Long Beach. Um, that was pretty nice. It's their second tasting room outside of uh, San Diego County. Uh, so it was nice to see that. It's a really, really cool space uh, right by the water in Long Beach. Uh, it has kind of a weird club vibe, which doesn't seem like craft beer at all, but it works. Uh, I had a Sour Wench from them. It was a Raspberry uh, Berliner Weiss that you probably would really enjoy. Um, and then also had a, a staple around here, Grunion Pale Ale. You can't really argue with. Uh, then I headed down to the brewery in Anaheim. Uh, well, not in Anaheim-ish. It's Placentia. But uh, I had a couple different beers from them. Had Rouge Colored Glasses. Had uh, a Doty, which is a like Manhattan-inspired beer. Um, had Wee Heavy Coconuts. Just a really good bourbon barrel aged Wee Heavy with coconut flavor added. I had a Quadruple Tunnelary. Uh, it was a uh, kind of sour raspberry... Oh, sorry. Sour blackberry quad. It sounds weird on paper, but actually was really enjoyable. Um, had Frambulus, which was kind of their take on a uh, framboise that I really enjoyed. And capped it off with some sour in the rye. And then my weekend ended with a very hefty beer, Mocha Wednesday. Uh, comes in at 19.7%. It is their, uh, their famed Black Tuesday uh, with uh, mocha and coffee added. So... A very hefty beer, one that I split with my wife because no way I was drinking that by myself. But yeah, it was a, it was a fun weekend of drinking on my end. I saw Ballast Point's been like, uh, they, they're like canning mixed mit cocktails or for some reason. Um, oh yeah, they put those out last year. Are they good and also why? I haven't tried them and I'm probably not going to. I think they, they did it actually before the Constellation acquisition. I think they just realized that, like, Grapefruit Sculpin kind of gave them, like, this uh, this weird, like, control of summer. And they just thought, hey, people probably want to drink mixed drinks on the beach. So why don't we give them cans to do it? And I haven't, sure. really, heard, I really, <laughs> I haven't really heard anything, like, one way or the other on them. I know, um, I would assume they're pretty sugary. I know that, I mean, they have their spirits that have actually won a decent amount of awards. Um, yeah, people don't talk about those as much as their beers, but yeah, their, their spirits have actually won quite a few awards in the last few years. 
Huh. Yeah, I haven't seen them personally, but I saw some stuff online, and I was wondering why one would need to <laughs> buy a can of gin and tonic, but uh, more power to you if you do. I mean, I'd prefer someone did that than buy a lime marita. That's, but that's fair. I, I, I have no doubt that they're better than that. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so if, you're, if you're trying to save the lime marita crowd, that, then I, I think you're doing them a service here. Fair enough. All right, so I guess moving to our non-Syracuse portion of things, we're not going to be previewing a conference this week. Um, we, we planned correctly. I just thought there would be something else to talk about this week, but I messed with some of the editorial on the site. So instead, we're going to talk about what's on everybody's mind, Big 12 expansion. We've done this already, but more when it was just a theory, more when it was just a very vague concept. Now I think we're starting to get into some of the actual logistics of it, Dan. Um, and I think the most fascinating part here is how pissed ESPN is that they're going to add some second-rate institutions and get the same amount of money, um, and they could take in the court over it. Yeah, it's super interesting because like, it just didn't seem to really get considered. Obviously, people were wondering why ESPN would you know, support it, but uh, the fact that there might be actual litigation between e- with ESPN and Fox, um, definitely pretty crazy, and it makes you wonder how... Uh, how things will shake out. And also, it raises the question of, like, what are Texas's actual end goals, considering that they have a um, separate partnership with ESPN with the Longhorn Network, or would they really uh, be open to, you know, defying ESPN on behalf of the Big 12, or, or, or is whatever they're doing kind of um, with ESPN in mind? Like, I saw we, there was a... The, I, have, I don't know if I'd go as far as to call it a conspiracy, but, like, a definite conspiratorial theory... Uh, that Texas would try to vote for something that the rest of the conference couldn't get behind in order to try to nick the whole thing. Um, yeah, it's all very political and very uh, super interesting. And um, Very Texas. Yeah. Oh, it's so Texas. I mean, as, as this is always going to be. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely am starting to drift toward that general theory um, that Texas, and to a point maybe Oklahoma too, if they're both eyeing some greener pastures, um, kind of forcing um, the Big 12 into a sticky situation with lesser brands so that they can leave, not lose out on as much money, um, and and overall, you know, win, well, probably in their eyes, realignment. Um, Oklahoma and Texas obviously have quite a few suitors um, should they decide to leave the Big 12. I know a couple people floated the idea, uh, Pat Forty did, what was it? I think a couple of days ago was talking about how, you know, this really does set the stage for um, you know the power co- the power four conferences of sixteen teams apiece. And I think to a point, yeah, maybe um, just because it's very obvious that no matter who the Big Twelve adds, that it's going to it, they're going to fall very short of the other four leagues. I think if the Pac twelve can get its uh, house in order in terms of its content distribution deal, I think that they can easily be right where they should be given you know, the populations and TVs um, and large alumni bases that, that they deal with and all that tradition that they have and, and should be able to exploit more. Um, but yeah, I, I think that this is going to be, the next few months and how this shakes out are going to be very telling about what happens next. I think it's funny now, too, that a lot of the, I mean, between West Virginia bloggers and other, tech, and other uh, Big 12 bloggers who were so, you know, ta- quote-unquote tapped in to what was happening during the first round of realignment, 
saying that the ACC's demise was was uh, was coming very soon. I think a lot of us thought that was you know absolute crap, and it ends up like now here we are knocking on the door of what could be the power for era soon. And if there's one league that's not going to be around, it is it is most certainly guaranteed to be the Big Twelve. Yeah, I mean it's always been kind of between the Big Twelve and the ACC um, at least the last couple of years. Uh, which is really interesting because now I feel like the ACC might actually be sitting in even a better spot than, maybe if not a better spot, like at least as secure a spot as like the Pac-12. Um, you've had a couple of different uh, programs, like Clemson especially, kind of hit uh, hit a peak right at the right time. Louisville's up and coming. Miami should be uh, on the way up under Mark Rick. You have the, uh, the new deal with ESPN, the network coming, Notre Dame being locked in through 2036, at least as much as they are now, if not more. Um, so a lot of things have come really, they've come together really well for the ACC, um, and I, they are so. I mean, the ACC isn't going anywhere for at least a couple decades. The Big Twelve could go somewhere tomorrow, um, and I've long thought that the Big Twelve is a little more uh, fragile than the ACC, and that's partially probably because I'm an ACC fan, so I was biased, but also because the ACC um, seems to just handle these things better in the back rooms and and Swafford for uh, all the criticisms of him being like a North Carolina shill, has done an amazing, uh, amazingly good job just keeping this league uh, intact and, and constantly making it stronger. Um, so now, I mean, if, if you start to get these football programs rolling and the ACC is, you know, while it's not going to be the, uh, the SEC most years, um, at least be in the conversation there, um, I think it's in a, re- a really good spot. And the Big 12, on the other hand, like, it, the, the whole makeup of the conference, it, it almost reminds you of the old Big East, especially when they're talking about, like, football onlys and you have different uh, distribution deals and uh, across the board, and you have – it just doesn't seem to make sense. And it, there's a reason why um, the SEC and the ACC and uh, the Big Ten a little less so because they have the, uh, the staled uh, payments for new schools. But even them, like, there's a reason why those, those leagues have uh, become so um, – they they just structured better, and they just seem to make more sense in terms of how the schools interact and how they uh, they deal with uh, the outside of the group. And the Big Twelve has just always seemed very fractured, and it, it just seems like uh, more and more likely by the day that something big happens, and and that there isn't going to be a solution in terms of expansion that is going to make everyone happy. Indeed, and you know what? I, I think you hit the nail on the head on a lot of the Big Twelve's issues, and it's. And yes, we're very ACC fans, but I think you and I in particular have always viewed this whole thing pretty realistically around the ACC's place in the world and its place in realignment. Um, anyone that deluded themselves into thinking the Big 12 was a stable spot for anyone, uh, you know, missed all the key factors here. Big 12 is the only conference that has a clear pecking order. Um, they have the, I'd say, least diverse collection of television sets. Um, they have the least marketable brands. I think the only real marketable brands you have um, in that league are, are Texas and Oklahoma, and then to a lesser extent, um, TCU and maybe Baylor. But at this point, the Baylor brand's dead in the water. Um, they have Ames. Yeah, they, they got Ames. You could, you could <laughs> Ames all day. They got Kansas basketball. That doesn't really matter in, in, uh, in these sort of you know, disagreements. I think you, know, every, you look at every other league. Every other league has equal partners. Um, across the board, and yes, there's some brands that are more important, but I don't think Ohio State and Michigan throw their weight around the, the Big Ten um, the same way that Texas and Oklahoma do in, in the Big 12. I think you see it a little bit in the ACC, 
um, just in terms of you know the uh, the Tobacco Road Mafia and UNC Virginia Duke um, kind of power structure. But at the same time, like you really don't see those schools, especially after I think they got a little scared by Florida State. Um, a few years ago, I don't think you see those schools throw their weight around nearly as much, especially when football drives so much of the freight. Florida State and Clemson are such popular properties. Um, it, it's just not its not sustainable, and I think that the ACC understood that quickly and adjusted, while the Big 12, again, there's just there's too many independent actors. It's, it's always been a marriage of convenience. I know the, the saying for a long time at the he- height of realignment was, you know, uh, the ACC is a conference full of teams that love their league but hate their TV deal. And the Big 12 is a conference full of teams that hate their league and love their TV deal. Um, and now you're kind of seeing all that come to fruition, except the ACC now loves the TV deal too. Um, and the Big 12 kind of hates both. Yeah, and uh, I think it's only going to get uh, more disparate, especially if uh, if something happens with Notre Dame. I, I know we talked about that uh was it the UNC blog that wrote the uh, oh, yeah, the whole Toronto thing? Blog. Yeah, that was um, super interesting, and uh, I thought brought up a lot of uh, really interesting points. Uh, one of which was selling everyone on UConn, and and you know if if that's the 16th team that uh, Notre Dame wants, I think that's fine. Um, I don't know that they bring much more than a lot of other teams, but um, the Big 12 is going to realign. I mean, don't expand. However effective that is, it's going to take some teams off the board. And UConn doesn't seem to be one of those teams. Um, they are getting so little buzz. And if this is the ACC uh, that was expanding, I'd probably feel okay if I was a UConn fan. But it's the Big 12 where everything's as noisy as possible. Um, but overall, I, I thought they had a lot of really interesting ideas. And um, for you know a long time, people have discussed like, oh, why doesn't the ACC realign according to like the old ACC, old Big East? And that was super unbalanced. But if you did have a league with Notre Dame all the way in. And then you had, you know, a possibly improved Miami and, and uh, Virginia Tech maybe bouncing back a little bit. That actually, uh, the, uh, they did the divisions that way, and I actually thought they were pretty, pretty balanced overall, um, which is funny because, like, a couple years ago, they totally wouldn't have been. Yeah, I think it's interesting how, you, like, you know, those teams have been flow. Um, obviously, when the, I mean, I know growing up, the Carolina teams were all kind of down at once. Uh, now you're seeing a much different thing. Uh, where UNC is suddenly recruiting at a top 25 level. Um, NC State's going to do whatever NC State does. Duke is Duke suddenly looks like an annual top 40 to 50 program, which is not something we were used to growing up. Um, but, yeah, I think that division, as long as Notre Dame's a, a full member, uh, does have – I mean, again, it's still not the geographic split you want. It still requires some stupid divisional names. But at the same time, at least that – it makes more sense for the teams you want to play. It makes more sense for, you know, competitive balance. And I think sustainable competitive balance as well. Um, I just think that the league would get a lot more, create a lot more cohesion within itself and a lot more uh, recognizable culture within itself um, if it was able to split along those lines eventually. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's unrealistic to see that anytime soon. Uh, I think UConn, begrudgingly... It is a realistic ad in the next five years, or maybe even sooner, depending on how this all shakes out. I think that's a good kind of, you know, jump into, you know, Dan, what do you think the Big 12 is going to do? I mean, these these ridiculous theories about um, football-only members, which to me doesn't make much sense, um, and the like. I mean, 
the network the football moves the needle but football's not going to be what is on the network as often as the basketball product and the olympic sports and and so to me i don't understand why you'd bother with football only members when they're really not going to help you add to the total content package um, of a potential network especially if it's going to be a potential network without texas involved the football only thing just doesn't make a lot of sense because it seems like that's mostly floated for byu um and i'm guessing that's mostly because of byu's uh tv contract but that thing doesn't seem to be as much of an obstacle as like uh texas is and if if Texas can have theirs, why can't they float BYU a bone if that's the pool they really want? But otherwise, like BYU is fairly competitive in basketball, and they're apparently really good in all the rest of their Olympic sports. So I don't know why you'd take football only from them. Um, I've seen UConn put as the football only, which is so funny in so many levels. I can't even like go beyond just saying how funny it is. Uh, why would you bring UConn on if not for men's basketball and women's basketball? But, you know, we digress. Um... It seems like Cincinnati just makes a ton of sense for like a million reasons, and they're kind of like a boring choice, but none of these choices are all that much beyond boring. Um, and it also seems like 14 might actually happen versus 12. I don't know if they're just like cutting out like another round eventually, or they actually like all these schools enough to, or they just can't decide, so they're like, screw it, we'll just go 14. Um, I don't really get that either, but I also don't get a lot of what the Big 12 is doing, so... Um, I almost think it's going to end up being like BYU, Cincy, Memphis, and Houston, I guess. Because, but the, the, the outward politicking is so fun. And uh, like there's a, we've seen that in the ACC before, obviously. Syracuse is on the wrong end of that. Uh, thanks, Vice Presidential Candidate Tim Kaine. Um, when Virginia Tech got added in their place. Um, but like this time, it's like it's crazy. You you have John Kasich stumping for Cincy. You have Greg Abbott stumping for Houston. You have Lieutenant Governor of Texas stumping for Houston and SMU. SMU's not getting added. That's never going to happen. Utah's governor stumping for BYU. It's like, it's crazy how open all this is. Um, it's fun because it you know allows for a lot of like ridiculous articles to be written and everything. But um, it's like even in the last like what three or four years uh realignment just been like hit so hard by the social media bug that like there's no secrecy anymore unless it's with the acc because the acc only works in backroom deals yep we function under the cover at night and i think when you look at embarrassing processes like what we're seeing with the big 12 now i think it's clear you know I think it's a clear sign for us. I think it's a clear sign for fans. It's a clear sign for executives and partners that deal with both leagues or one of the leagues that one of these is a professional operation and the other one is just kind of this wacky kangaroo court controlled by Texas. Um, you're just not seeing... You're not seeing any level of professionalism with the Big 12 and what they're doing, um, which is funny to watch from the outside. I'm sure it's harrowing to watch from the inside. Um, I think BYU... The theory I saw that made the most sense, um, I believe, was the one on uh, TCU blog, uh, Frogs of War, um, that, that seemed to, from a source that they had, seemed to indicate that um, Texas wanted Houston and they wanted it purely for their own political gain and also to get like another Texas school that followed them to do whatever, see TCU at this point and Texas Tech, but... Anyway, those schools following them, having another one in Houston really get, gives them a solid voting block. Um, and then Oklahoma really wanting uh, Cincinnati uh, and BYU to an extent. I, I know we've talked about this. I don't, I don't think you can 
make your bed on the East Coast with West Virginia and then try to do it again on the West Coast with BYU. Big 12's biggest mistake, and while West Virginia's been a decent ad for them, is that uh, they're the only league that really left their general footprint in order to expand. I think everybody else made logical moves, even the Big Ten, to be honest, with Maryland and Rutgers. You understood why. You understood the connection between Penn State and those schools. There was a clear line, I think, when it comes to uh, you know West Virginia. There's just really kind of a gap. There was an ignorance about travel costs and about culture fit. And I think they are a cultural fit only in the sense that they love football. It's just it's too much. And, yeah, if, if you want to expand... Cincinnati has to be one of the schools, and that's how you get into this 14-team argument when, you know, Oklahoma wants Cincinnati and BYU, and then Texas wants Houston, and then, okay, well, are you going to leave one of those schools out? Probably not, because Oklahoma wants BYU so bad, and then, you know, who else is in? I mean, there's no clear 14th school that works, and again, I don't in a 14-team situation, there's no possible way UConn gets in. The only way UConn gets in is if it's Cincinnati and them. I don't think there's another reasonable scenario where where they're added over, you know, anybody from Memphis or Tulane or even the Florida schools who I know have kind of fallen to the back burner a little bit of late. Yeah, it just doesn't seem the way this is going that UConn's really involved. And maybe, maybe the Big 12 will come to surprise us all by being, you know, sneaky about it, but... They've just received so little buzz, um, and every other school, aside from the Florida, like you said, the Florida seems to have dropped off, uh, unless you're, like, counting Larry the Cable Guy tweeting about UCF, um, which you shouldn't. Uh, but, like, those three, for whatever reason, have just, like, don't seem to be part of the equation, and everyone else at least has gotten some significant, you know, even rumors that have gone through, like, the big guys like Brett McMurphy and whoever saying that there's... Um, backing for that. So, yeah, it seems like four almost seem, uh, might be more likely than two, and uh, I wouldn't feel right if I was UConn. Um, and if they don't get in on this round, I mean, they're pretty much just looking at the ACC unless, you know, they think that they're going to be sitting pretty for whenever the Big Ten goes to 15, which who knows when that even happens, if it ever happens. Yeah, I mean, I do think everyone's bound for 16 eventually, but again, if they're bound for 16, I don't know how it it can't happen cleanly, and that's the bigger issue, is that this is not a clean move. Um, if you could redo things, I'm sure you'd just make clean conferences and you'd just say, okay, these are the you know, 64 teams that are in, everybody else who aren't, and, and we'd cut it along geographic lines. But the Pac-12 is completely landlocked at this point um, because there are no viable options. Boise's market isn't there. The academics aren't there. Uh, BYU's religious affiliation uh, will always prevent them from joining the Pac-12. Um, there, there's no situation in which the Cougars are, are, are in the Pac-12 um, based on that alone. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you're them, where do you go? The, the Pac-16 idea was always floated with, with a, a reach into Texas. I know that nonsensical kind of chat about um, Houston to the Pac-12 came up. Um, I think it would be a really... It seems like too wild a move, even for the Pac-12. I feel like they've been pretty conservative in realignment. Um, and, yeah, I, I just don't I don't see that happening. And even if you invite Houston, who else are you inviting? Um, it's just, again, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not an option for them, which makes me think long-term, like, what is, what is the Pac-12 doing if the Big Ten gets aggressive again? 
or if the ACC and SEC just decide that, you know, all right, we're going to we're gonna try to pick apart the rest of the American Athletic and, and Big 12. Like, like you said, as much as 16 uh, teams and, and four conferences sounds great, like where, where and how is it happening, especially if Texas and Oklahoma are are really just going to hold out to the highest bidder. I don't think the Pac-12 is that. Yeah, it's it's just it's tough to envision it going five to ten, just because like then you're adding so many schools that just aren't part of the equation, and and you're just splitting money in ways that probably doesn't need to be split. I, I think it's either going to stay four sixteen or it's going to be some weird hybrid of fourteen and fifteen team leagues um, at some point, and, and it's hard to really tell where that's going to break down. And because maybe the Pac-12 gets totally devoured by the other four, but uh, there really isn't, like, an obvious way. Like, if you were to redo the whole thing from the start, maybe there is, but otherwise, like, there's no way that every single thing that happens uh, makes sense, and and there's no real knowing if there actually is an endgame or if this is just going to be the way of the world for the rest of uh, college college, uh, football's identity here. Uh, I think that's probably more likely, that there's this constant shift. Yeah, and I mean... What we're seeing now, too, is that these, like, constant shifts are obviously becoming more frequent. It's not great to see. Um, I just think in general, like, it's a distraction from the season, and Big 12's at least acknowledged that they'd like to get it done before the season, but we're definitely seeing, while realignment was just like a a kind of mild undercurrent, and it wasn't a a TV-centric move, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, it became a little bit of one, the late 80s and early 90s, and now it's just become this kind of annual song and dance um, of, you know, who's going where, why would they go. Um, it also drives page views, drives conversation. So the problem is, you know, this is where the conflict of interest comes in for, for media, and that goes for us as well, is that, you know, this is all stupid, we don't agree with it, but, you know, it, it helps it helps keep the lights on and it helps a lot of sites you know, keep going and, and be able to, to sell larger packages to advertisers. There are a lot of people um, dependent, to be honest, at this point on realignment news to keep sites going and to keep sites well-funded. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally am not hoping that, uh, as long as it doesn't involve the ACC losing teams, I'm all for realignment staying in perpetuity. I enjoy it way too much, even if it is mostly nonsense and uh, gets resolved in much cleaner ways uh, often than it um, well actually in this case I don't think it'll be cleaner but it often you know just boils down to uh, something that probably is more obvious than all of the conspiracy theories I don't know if that's going to be what the Big 12 ends up doing but uh, yeah I mean if, as long as I'm in this uh, industry they want to keep on pretending like they're going to expand or you know poach each other that's fine with me I would have to agree, again, as long as it doesn't involve the ACC. Um, you know what? I think I think we've kind of run our course on this. I, uh, I'm surprised to report that we are under an hour. Yes. This is probably, this probably the first time in months that we've been under an hour. Yeah, oddly, because you would think the offseason would lend to um, less conversation, but it ends up that since we don't talk about Syracuse for half the thing anyway, that this gives you give us more of an excuse not to do so. Yep, and no preview obviously this week, but I think we filled the time, the you know twenty five minutes pretty well. Yeah. So yeah, next week uh, we're going to be previewing the Atlantic Division, 
Uh, we'll talk Syracuse briefly as part of that. Um, then the Coastal the week after, and then a full-fledged hour-long Syracuse preview uh, the following week. So folks have a lot to look forward to on those fronts. Things they actually care about, uh, a little bit more than Tulane's Big 12 prospects and whatever nonsense we decide is going on this week. Yes, good times. I look forward to it. Because that means we're almost there. We are we're almost so close. There. It's crazy. I'm looking forward to it. The longest off-season in sports is less than a month away from being over, thankfully. Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. And then the long college athletic season begins. All right. On that note, that was Dan. I'm John. Thanks for listening to Troy News and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, whatever other service you may listen to this podcast on. And a month from now, go orange. Go orange. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.